0: The podcast In Depth is brought to you by the team at Inform, Virginia's leading lifestyle magazine. Published by Lee Enterprises and reaching more than 50,000 households statewide, Inform spotlights the best of Virginia culture, travel, food, personalities, and more. And the In Depth podcast takes you on a deeper dive. Here are your hosts, magazine editor Clay Barber and associate editor Lewis Brisman. Hello, everybody, and welcome to In Depth. I'm Louis Brisman, joined as always by my partner in crime, Clay Barber. Clay, how are you? I'm doing good. How are you today? I'm okay. Uh, acknowledgement here. I consider myself to be a lousy photographer. Like, I don't even like it when people hand me their iPhones and ask me to say, hey, can you get a picture You're of us? You're always cutting off heads. You can't can't get it just, focused. It's blurry. What's... I have less than zero confidence <laughs> when it comes to any element of photography. Are, are you? Do you consider yourself pretty decent in that regard? Um, I'm pretty good.
1: When I was in college, you know, there was that moment, um, you know, I worked at the school newspaper and I took photos and I, and I wrote and I decided to go the direction of writing, but I can, I
0: can handle a camera. I'm not, I'm not going to win any awards, but yeah. I famously took a disposable camera to Iceland in might've been 2004, 2005 and came back with generally about 30 frames of a gloved thumb (laughs) Um, and then some very nice elements of icelandic architecture and nature usually in the upper right corner so needless to say our guest today is a very talented photographer unlike myself a glenn mcclure from norfolk he was born in norfolk and raised in virginia and he got hooked on photography as a young adult and has immersed himself in the art form for really a half century now he was a photographer's assistant in norfolk to start with then became a commercial photographer The big thing is he evolved into specializing in artistic portraits. And those evocative shots that he would take of people going about their lives in Virginia coalesced into really a big part of his aesthetic. He had his first solo exhibition in 2002 and has had many since then. His ability to coax people into sitting for portraits was also accompanied by a big love of travel, not just across Virginia, but to Italy, France, and especially Ireland where his focus on portraiture was expanded to include landscapes that incredibly captured the natural light and natural wonder of that very mysterious country. Glenn was featured in the fall 2021 edition of Inform magazine.
1: Glenn McClure, welcome to In-Depth.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: I tell you, it's really, really strange, um, as you noted before we started recording— That um, you and I have never met before because I lived for the past nine years in Hampton Roads until I moved here. And your office was right down the street from where I lived when I lived in Norfolk.
2: Yeah, and you probably don't remember, or maybe you do. We worked briefly over the Internet back uh, for the pilot, and they did a thing called... I forget the name, but it was for iPads. Evening pilot. Oh, gosh. Yes, yeah, the, and you were like a point of contact a few times there. That's and so, right. Although we the, never met face-to-face. That
1: was one of those um, technological marvels that is thought up by the, like, you know, old, not, not to be disrespectful, but the older, was our executive editor at the time, and he was one of those. It was, we need to be you know, online, we need to have an internet presence with the... And he was like, you know what we need? An iPad website only. It was like, it was literally only on the iPad. So you create a device, you create a a news site that a very limited number of people can get. It was not that he did not have an MBA. He was a great (laughs) executive editor, not a great businessman. Well,
0: you know, in in a similar vein, you know, in Richmond, the Times-Dispatch produced an edition for Kindle... In its early years, that was <laughs> something go. where let's just say the uh, the labor was yeah. outsized to the return. <laughs> the juice. Jesus um,
1: wasn't worth all the season. Right. But, you totally.
0: know that was that our was... the industry's versions of innovation yeah. back in the day yeah, we things look back are on changing them so fast that yeah. you know
2: you got to try yeah. and uh, see what works yeah. Yeah. it was I beautiful I
1: mean it was very pretty it did pretty work but um but it was you know Probably 14 people saw it
0: so why
2: I didn't get paid so much
0: yeah, exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> cool. you're a photographer you know that <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm used <laughs> to it. Yeah, yeah, you know, you know so you don't
2: do it for money you do yeah. it for the for the
1: passion let me So you're a Norfolk native Yes, I am. What's, which high school? Where'd you go?
2: Well, I, I went to Lake Taylor, but uh, I ended up after that going to a private school that didn't last too long. It was called Eastern Academy. And uh, it was very small. And to give you an idea of how old I am, I graduated in 72. And um, I think 10 years later, it was not there anymore. That's oh, cool. wow. So, but I still have a lot of lifelong friends from that time and on. I was into sports and stuff like that. And that, that was good. Um but I knew that wasn't going to be my calling. So,
1: so when, you were, when you were in high school, did you, were you fully formed as an idea of being a photographer? Or what was the dream? What was the original? There part? was no dream.
2: Um, you know, I have a pretty interesting story, I think. Because uh, I guess like a lot of people, I had no clue what I wanted to do. And I wasn't really college material. You know, I tried. Um, but uh, I was working at a department store at Military Circle um, Mall. And one day, when I was 19, after that, I walked by the camera department. And I saw these cameras in the case. And I said, wow, I think I'll buy a camera. I get a 10% employee discount. That day changed my life. Before that, I never took art. I had no interest. The only art interest I had was like rock and roll, you know, if you call that art. And
1: For sure. So yeah. I
2: bought the camera, a tripod, and a flash on the whim. And it, it changed everything. I mean, it was like the one thing I liked. I mean, I loved to play golf, but what was I going to do with my life? Well, I still didn't know at that point, but about three years later, I said, you know, I kept having little jobs and quitting and saying this, I don't want to be a wine truck delivery guy, and I left at launched the first day, stuff like that. But I got the Yellow Pages out one day. And I wrote a letter to all the photography studios listed. And I said, my name's Glenn McClure. I want to be a photographer. I don't know anything. I'll come. I'll do anything you ask. I'll sweep the floors. I'll do deliveries. And I was so sharp, I forgot to put my phone number and the letter. <laughs> but one place wrote a letter back and said, uh, could you come in? So I got all excited. I got all my photos together, put my little portfolio together, went in. It's called Studio Center. They're still around. They're really nationally known for their radio commercials. And this this is in Norfolk. Norfolk. Yeah, Virginia Beach now. It was Norfolk 22nd Street then. So I uh, excitedly went in with my portfolio. And the guy's name was Paul Schnabel, who's one of my heroes, and he was the photographer. And so he's looking at my letter and he's like, So you'll do anything. And I'm like, Yeah, and he goes, You know how to drive a stick ship? And I'm like, Yeah. He goes, I think you'll do. And I'm like, do you want to look at my photography? Because <laughs> I don't need to see that. So that's where I started. And, um, and sweeping. And it wasn't long that they saw I was really into it. And they gave me a key to the building, which was a big deal, and said you can come in anytime you want after hours and use all the equipment.
1: And you were 19. This was when you were 19?
2: No, okay. this was later. later. This was, okay. uh, yeah, no, that, I was 19 when I got my first camera. So um, that was in... 74, and I got hired in 77. There, uh, so, so you've been three okay. years, yeah. you know, bumming around doing this house painting, whatever. But I had the mm-hmm. urge for photography, and you know, I had bought the Time Life series of photo books. I don't know if you ever heard of them. Mm-hmm. Famous. Yep. That's where I got my schooling, and uh, and then I started buying books of famous photographers, some I'd never heard of, and just started studying, you know, that. But the um the people at Studio Center giving me that break was really what it was. Cause um I just remember walking in like a place like this and seeing all the tripods and you know, and like the, the TV weatherman was there to do sound, you know, radio commercials and I thought, Oh my god, it's like Hollywood, you know? There's Andy Roberts, the weatherman, walking down the hall, you know? And it was just so cool. There was no pressure, you know, somebody would say, Go pick up that I don't know that 400 millimeter lens, and I'm like, what's well, a 400 millimeter lens? You know, yeah. that's where I started. And uh, well,
0: I tell c- us about actually tell us about that first camera back in the department store. Yeah. Um, was it quite an investment for you know a late teenager at that time, even with the 10 percent discount? And what actually did you get? Yeah, was, what it, was that, that It was a
2: Kawa, Kowa, K O W A brand.
0: Um, it was a Japanese yeah, model. Right. and
2: I have no idea what I paid, but um, I probably put it on some kind of time. Thing because I uh, bought a tripod and layaway. Flash. Yeah, yeah, the old layaway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but the ten percent employee discounts. What did it, man? It was right. like, oh wow, man, I'm saving a lot of money here. But um, you know, and I carried that thing everywhere, uh, parties and just shot, and I didn't really know what I was doing. But it was this started to become my passion.
0: Did you have it for a couple of years actually, or yeah, did, were you quickly it, sort of realizing that you wanted to be investing whatever you had in new gear?
2: Yeah, I did. Uh, I, I had it. I don't remember a year or two. And then I, I remember um, buying a speed graphic four by five camera. That was amazing. And then I, I traded in my Kawa and whatever for a Nycromat, which I thought, you know, I've reached the mountaintop now I've got a Nikon <laughs> and uh you know, the pictures still sucked, but it was a good camera, right. you know. So, you know, and I just started uh, trying to learn wherever I could and paying attention to the this guy, Paul Schnabel, that hired me. He was a really good uh, still-life photographer, and I would just watch and just be amazed, you know, at what he did. And then um, somehow or another, um, I was there three years, and uh, I got a call from an ad agency called Arthur Palizos Associates. And I had heard of them, but I didn't know anybody there or anything. Somehow they had heard my name, and they were starting up an in-house photography studio at the ad agency. So I went to see Mr. Palizos, and uh, I'll never forget this. I I was making $12,000 at Studio Center, and I remember going, well, Okay, I could come work here, but I, I couldn't come for any less than fifteen thousand. And I, he immediately said, We can do that. And at that point I went, Wow, I guess I undersold myself a little bit. But uh yeah, you know, yeah. but it was so cool because I got to order all the they didn't have anything. This was starting up from scratch. So I got to order all the lights and the cameras and what we needed and and then I got to work with art directors directly and creative directors and all that stuff, which you know, I was just a low man on the pole at Studio Center, and that opened up a lot of eyes, and I learned a lot from, you know, just seeing storyboards and all that stuff, and, you know, and uh, so I was there for eight years, and it was, it was really great. Uh, I was, um, I met my future wife there, you know, and it was just a great experience. It was really no pressure. It was a congenial place. Everybody was great, and you know, we'd all go out drinking after work, and you know, just hanging out with writers and you know, the creative directors. Although some of them, you know, I thought were were a little odd. But you know, as some um, went on with my career, I found out most everybody I dealt with was odd, and so was I. You know, so that's just the way it is.
1: During that period, is that when do you start to learn when you're in a scenario like that the difference, the sort of line between art and commercial art? The you know, the uh, the the you're you're shooting for you know, less than artistic purposes, but it still requires a great degree of skill and artistry to pull it off.
2: Yeah, and I'll be honest, back then I wasn't still thinking about art. Photography was a job. Um, You know, it it was just something, I I, I loved it. It was my passion, but, you know, I would on weekends maybe take my camera when I went up to the mountains and shoot pictures, but I I hadn't gotten bit yet. You know, we can talk about that because I remember how that happened but um you know so you know i worked there eight years and worked with all these great people and it was a job and well why don't we just talk about that yeah well, i was it, gonna it, say
0: tell, you yeah. know yeah. it's the perfect time uh, how did the bug bite r-
2: really it happened when i turned 40 i remember going wow i'm old now you know now i look back you know, wow <laughs> i was, was a baby yeah. 40's a
1: young man yeah, but man. i'm like
2: well so glenn what are you gonna? Are you gonna just do photography when the phone rings? Or are you gonna go back like you did when you first got that cow and carry that thing with you everywhere and be excited and? It so that's literally how it happened. So I started coming up with self-assigned projects, and and doing my own thing, you know. And um, and and then as I kept going on, the commercial stuff started becoming less important than the art stuff, and. And now to the point where I really don't do hardly any commercial.
0: So in other words, it was a midlife crisis that got you to, to find the artist within yourself?
2: Well, I wouldn't. yeah, I guess it is. I didn't think of it as a crisis, but it was just like an awakening. You know, right. like, uh, is this it? You know, is this all I'm going to do for the rest of my life? Which was fine. I was paying the bills. I had a house, you know, I was doing all right. But um, I'm glad I had that little talk with
0: myself, you know. Well, let's talk, uh, thinking about influences, you mentioned that, you know, as a late teen young adult, you maybe were buying photography books to help you yeah. learn the craft. But talk a little about the artistic influences, you know, from photographic history, photographers sure. that have shaped your aesthetic or um, pointed you in certain directions. Well, I can tell you the first book I bought, you,
2: know, you might find this funny. Um, I was in Military Circle Mall and there was a Walden bookstore and they had a, you know, one of those big tables out front with all the discount books there was this big hardcover book of this man named Steichen. I didn't know who the hell he was, you know. It was Edward Steichen, one of the fathers of photography. And I just bought it because it was a discount book, just sort of like the camera. You know, I must have been looking for deals. And um, I took that home and just started studying it. And one of the first photos I remember seeing was he had done a night exposure of a Rodin statue by Moonlight. And I just remember going, I, I had no idea you could do night photography. You know? like So I started from there, and as it time went on, of course, I started getting into landscape photography. So, of course, Ansel Adams came to mind, and I started buying all his books and trying to understand how he did what he did. It was a little too complicated for me, his famous zone system. I tried it. I, you know, I wasn't a... You know, I just wasn't that smart. You know, but I and, for, I, got, and,
1: I and for the we all obviously know what the zone system is. But I mean, for the for the people listening at home,
2: yeah. What, well, what he, is Ansel that? Adams was uh, a concert pianist, and he was sort of trying to decide in his early life: Am I going to be a concert pianist or a photographer? And sort of like me at one point: Am I going to be a golfer or a photographer? So he started thinking about the keys on a piano. And he started relating those keys to shades of gray in the photographic scale. So he developed, it's called pre-visualization and he would see a scene and he would be thinking already how that print was going to look and how that rock, you know, maybe on the left was going to be one shade of gray versus, you know, this, the clouds in the sky. And he figured out something called the zone system. So, He knew right where to place the exposure on what he thought was the most important part of the scene. Maybe it was the shadow or maybe it was the highlight. And then he would also already know how he's going to develop the film while he was still standing out there in the middle of Yosemite or wherever he was. So I took the basics of that and, and applied it to my own way. In, in my yeah, dark
1: room. That's a different level of genius than, I mean, you know, the to be able to look at that and link it in that way.
2: Well, I spent a lot of time in the dark room. Uh, probably <laughs> if I'd have known there's no system, I would have saved a lot of money and, <laughs> and, and sheets of paper, but I, I would literally spend all day working on one print, and then you'd come in the next day and you'd go, oh, wow. I should have made the top left a little darker. I should have made the bottom right, you know, whatever. And then you'd have to go back in there and do it all again. But that's what I did learn from Ansel Adams. Um, you know, just because it came out of the tray and it looks kind of all right, it's not good enough, you know, if you care, really care.
0: Right. So, so, you know, obviously, you know, Ansel Adams, and we'll talk a little bit later about let's call it some darkroom techniques and interpretations. Mm-hmm. Um, when I think about your portraiture, I'm thinking from, you know, the history of photography, I sometimes think of like August Sander, yeah. the German, you know, photographer who's people of the 20th century series. Right was sort of capturing the range and nobility of of folks. In terms of both portraits and landscapes, were there some other photographers that were influencing? There's so
2: many, I couldn't list them all. But the main one after Ansel was Paul Strand. And he was considered a humanist, I guess. And he made people kind of look heroic, just regular everyday people. And, you know, I gravitate to people like that, like workers. Random. We can talk about it. I've done a lot of portraits of just random people um, that I never knew till the second I'm about to photograph them. And so Paul Strand, I spent I've spent thousands of dollars on Paul Strand books. Another guy is Josef Sudek, the poet of Prague, was his nickname. A one arm photographer, and I learned from him he could turn the trash on his desk into art. I mean literally balls of paper and old glass and and stuff like that. Um, Just amazing. And then another one is Irving Penn, and you are talking about Sonder. Mm -hmm. Um, Irving did a whole series of workers, which really influenced me in 1949 and 1950 in in London, Paris, and New York, and he used Northlight. uh, He rented Northlight um, coming in a window, Places, little small studio spaces. And he would find butchers and chimney sweeps. And he had a whole team searching these people out. I never had that. but And then he would photograph them and, and really make them look, you know, direct, right in the camera kind of, kind of work. Um, and I kind of have
0: borrowed from that for sure from Irving Penn. You know, it's interesting. All of these photographers you're mentioning, um, you know, certainly Strand who spent almost the last 30 years of his life, you know, in France. Yep. There's all this, um, sense of, let's maybe say social awareness. Um, you know, often some of these names, they were associated with subversion yep. by authorities at the time, whether, you know, it was during the Nazi era for August Sander, uh, you know, the sort of red scare in, in, you know, the States in that time, um, and you know, I wonder if, for you, thinking about—and we'll talk more about your portraiture—but this sort of sense of like highlighting the human condition.
2: Not so much for me that you know, not like a documentary photographer, so to speak. But, but one thing you know that we could throw in here was my dad. My dad was a telephone repairman for forty-two years for CNP Telephone Company. And I just admire my dad so much. He could do anything with his hands, and I couldn't, you know. And, you know, he went to work every day, carried the lunch pail, came home. And that just stuck with me, you know. Like, to me, I was thinking, you know, this is what a real man is, you know. Um, And so I admired people like that, you know. And um, that's how I ended up doing the Shipyard Series. Um, You know, I would see uh, in the neighborhood I lived in, in Norfolk, A lot of the shipyard workers would go to work on a bus that the shipyard supplied, and they'd drop them off at the end of certain streets, and you'd see several of them straggling down the road, carrying their lunch pail at the end of the day, and I'm just going like, man, those are real workers there. And so, you know, that kind of stuff stuck with me. Back then, I wasn't even, you know, had no clue I'd be a photographer, but it it kind of put the seeds in my mind um, to just appreciate regular everyday people you know, everybody's got a story. And I just kinda admire that. And um, you know, hopefully I show that, you know, with my work, but you know, that's for the viewers. And you did a side. you've
1: done a series, right? The um the colonial series. The twenty one hundred Colonial yeah. Avenue. Yeah, with, yeah where that's, where the it was in that nature, right? I mean yeah, capturing... yeah,
2: yeah. That took four years to for me. I kept thinking about for four years, I I, I was looking out, I had a loft studio on Colonial Avenue. And I, when I wasn't I doing anything, I would look down to see all these cool people walking back and forth. And I kept saying, well, one day I'm going to take my strobes, I'm going to take my cameras, and I'm going to go down there and I'm going to set up and I'm just going to photograph whoever will let me. And I remember my wife going, oh, man, you can't do that. Somebody's going to steal your equipment, you know. It's, well, it got to be October of 1998, and I said, November the 14th. I'm going down there, and I'm going to set up, and I'm going to call my buddies, and they're going to come help me, and I'm going to offer them free beer <laughs> to be my helpers. So I had more helpers than I needed that day, but it changed my life that that day um, because back then I was using a 4x5 view camera to do the portraits, and I set up my white backdrop literally on the street in front of where my studio was. I had one parking spot that I was allowed from the landlord. I used that. My team of helpers would go, and they would approach people while I was, like, doing your portrait. All of a sudden, there would be a couple of other people. So we did 22 people that day until it started raining, and then that kind of ended it. And I had no clue what I was going to do with this. I just wanted to do it. So I did the prints, and, uh, you know, basically they're in a box. I showed them to a couple of people, and one lady who worked at, it was called the Contemporary Art Center of Virginia. It's now MOCA. She said, hey, these are great. Would you like for me to set up an appointment with the curator? And I was, sure. And one of my other friends, who was kind of a sculpture artist, said, Glenn, you, you these should be really big. And I didn't have the ability to do, a, I mean, a giant life-size print. So I sent one off to Portland Photographics in Maine, had it made on spec, went down to my meeting. I had 16 by 20 prints, and I remember the curator I took the big one and put it over in the corner. The curator was kind of just going through them, and I was thinking, well, she doesn't like them. We got to the end, and I said, hey, I've got one more. Would you like to see it? Oh, sure. And I went over, and it literally was mounted. I just held it up like this. And she goes, would you like to have an exhibition? (laughs) And I went, wow. And so we had the exhibition. It was great. Little did I know that the Virginia Museum came by for a tour one day, and they saw it, and they said, this stuff's great. We want it in our museum. And that really changed everything for me. So then I got the feeling, well, people like this. So I hatched a plan to do another project like that, except across Virginia. So I had made some new contacts at the Virginia Museum, and one of them was a guy named Jeffrey Allison. Who has turned out to be a fantastic supporter of my Je- work?
0: Jeffrey's the manager of statewide programs at VMFA, known statewide. I mean, arguably one of the most important people in art in Virginia I, for, for the connections sure. he's no built. question. Um, and himself a former yeah. photography professor in college, actually. That's so. right. And he's still
2: a photographer, and he's yeah. a great photographer. Um, so I arranged to come up, and we went to Helen's Restaurant here in Richmond, and I, s- I told Jeffrey what I wanted to do, and he told me, uh, you know, I had this whole list of cities where I thought I might want to go set up. The same concept, the white backdrop, the 4x5 camera. And he would go, okay, well, don't go to that city. There's not too many people there to help you, but this is good, this one's good, you know. like." So we literally, I picked, I wanted to do it all in the year 2002, one year. We went to 12 cities from Bristol on the Tennessee border to Arlington, Virginia Beach Boardwalk, Richmond, And places in between. And um, I did 464 portraits um, with my 4x5. And about midway through that project, again, I had no idea what was going to happen with this. I just wanted to do it. I thought it would be fun. I thought it would be cool. I uh, was in Roanoke. And the people at the um, Art Museum of Western Virginia, they were kind of my sponsors in Roanoke. And we went out to dinner afterwards. And the curator... Asked me if I'd like to have an exhibition there. Again, you know, just they saw what I was doing. I had no clue, but they luckily they're smarter than I am, they knew. So they agreed to do that, and they agreed to pay for a, a book. And so again, you know, just a wacky idea turned into something
0: great. And and perhaps appropriately named, a random portrait of Virginia. Of Virginia. So yeah. if you're motivations or methods perhaps seemed a little random, you know, the it seemed to be captured. The ethos got captured in the overall project.
2: Yeah. And, and the cool thing with that was I would, um, mainly work for a lot of college students, photography students, as my helpers. So in exchange for me, maybe coming the day before and giving a talk to the class, they would supply me eight, ten students to be my, you No, know, they were the ones usually doing the recruiting of people and, um, so I got to meet really cool people, photography instructors around the state, the students themselves, plus the people, the subjects. Yeah. you
1: know, Do,
2: you know, one of the
1: interesting things we were in the world that we work in, we're often with photographers, and you'll um, they'll see people in different ways. You know, they people that we would look at, they'll come, you know, I don't know how many times I've been one with a photographer like Todd, and they'll see someone, and they'll be like, I would really like to shoot that person because. There's something about their face, or and I imagine it's different photographer to photographer. For you, do, do you like? There's something that captures your attention when you think about well, portraiture. Yeah, there, there
2: is that, but you know, you got to remember that these projects, these are called a random portrait. So I would do anybody. Yeah, just, you know, it didn't matter. And and I have but, to tell you the truth. A lot of times, you you go, "Wow, that tattooed guy there, he's going to be cool," and then here comes somebody with their. I don't know their tie and their little sleeveless sweater, and you're like, okay, this is a, you know, this is not going to be that great. Then when you get back and you look at them, the guy that you thought wasn't going to be that great is just amazing, mm. and the tattoo guy is like, okay, you know, I did it because he's got the tattoos. But, the camera
1: know, reveals something that you didn't notice didn't initially. Didn't even notice, yeah.
2: and you know, and it's that way a lot of times when I'm doing these portrait projects, and now with digital, you know, you can do so many more exposures. Yeah, I a lot of times when I'm shooting, I'm not sure what's going to, which, you know, which one's going to be the best. And so, and like, here's an example for you. I just, last week, it's a guy I know is doing a a CD. He went to Nashville and recorded it and he asked me to do the photography for it. I did 923 exposures, um, which is a lot for me. I don't usually do that many, but we did several changes. I had a stylist, which I don't usually work with a lot. And, you know, my favorite one was exposure 923, <laughs> you know, and at the point then I just thought, okay, we're done, you know, but I, that's how it works sometimes. It's the first one, or it's the last one
0: many times. So tell us, you know, for, um, you know, from 2100 Colonial Avenue, a uh, random portrait, you know, Virginia, this is sort of happening in roughly a five, you know, four to five year span. Yeah. Um, tell us about a particularly memorable portrait from either of those series maybe something that's really stuck with you well there's
2: a lot but I was thinking on the drive up here today about how fortunate I am to just kind of follow my gut follow my you know intuition and the portrait that I'm about to talk about maybe wasn't that one of the most stellar ones from the random portrait but um we were in Chincoteague Virginia one of the stops and what are those uh, religious folks um who ride the bicycles and wear the white shirts. and The, um, the Mormons? The, 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 the,
0: Latter-day Day Saints, right. Latter, yeah. yeah.
2: There was two of those fellows, and one of them was uh, my subject, and I was just making talk. So I said, you're out witnessing today, huh? And he goes, yeah, we all have our calling, and yours is photography. And I just remember going, wow, I mean, I have a calling. You know, I hadn't thought about <laughs> it like that, mm-hmm. and it just stuck me. So that guy... In 2002, has been in my head ever since. But um, some of the more visually appealing ones from that s- series was a, a lady truck driver in Rafine, Virginia. We set up at White's Truck Stop, one of the most coldest days I've ever had in my life. And I was working with students from um, Southern Virginia University. And I remember it was about 22 degrees, and this one kid was wearing flip-flops. Um, And I don't know how he did that, but this truck driver lady had this big hood. She was an African-American lady and with the white backdrop. And I did a horizontal version of it. I remember mostly I do verticals and it was just so graphic. So that one stuck out um, just for its graphic nature. And then another one in Bristol, Virginia. Oh boy, his name, Elijah was his name. And he had a bow tie I forget the type of hat, like a, you know, a hat older mm-hmm. people wore in the fifties, and he had just purchased a house for fifty thousand dollars. I remember that story, and uh, but just the bow tie, that hat, that look right in the camera. Those those two, are two of my favorites from that project.
0: Mm-hmm. For sure, you know, I I noted that our our sister news company in Fredericksburg, the Freelance Star made mention of one of the shots you took in, I think, Tappahannock, which was um, I think there was a sheriff's investigator who brought a friend with her who had been like a volunteer in the sheriff's department who had a brain tumor um, and actually passed away maybe a month or so after that. Um, And I'm curious, like, what have you learned about establishing trust with a subject when, as you say, you're sometimes meeting people and looking to photograph them almost instantaneously. Well,
2: for me, you know, I'm trying to not make it seem like, you know, I'm capturing their soul or stealing anything or, you know, that's obvious I'm not hiding behind a tree and doing documentary photography. You know, we've got the white backdrop, people everywhere. And so for people like that, uh, we'll usually just walk up, shake their hand and, and usually use comedy to kind of diffuse the situation and they wouldn't be there if they didn't want to do it to number one. So that's helpful. But usually, um, you know, I'll just make fun of myself or something. I'll tell people to look up here at my bald dome. I hope it's not too glary or or things like that. So I feel like, you know, I'm not too threatening. So I think people like that. And then I try to explain exactly what I'm doing, you know, like, um, hold on, I'm focusing. Don't move. You know, you're doing great. You look great. Just keep looking right in my camera. You know, and when I'm back, when I was using film, I'm putting the film and I'm about to do this, do that. So just make sure you don't move. You'll be out of focus. That's a beautiful look. I like that. Just perfect. You know, so I think it's important to just make people part of the process, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's my way. Just right. basically being a goober. Let's, <laughs> you know?
1: well, let's just, shift the combo just briefly or yeah. actually not briefly to Ireland. Oh, Um, okay. The the package that we ran, the story we did on you with all of those amazing photos from Ireland. Um, What, you go back, you've gone there a couple dozen, about a dozen times or so, is that right? 20. You've been 20 times over 20 years, is that Uh, right?
2: It was 25 years. Wow. Yeah. So what keeps bringing you back? What keeps. The light, the light. It's, It's all about the light. I had no clue at first. This is another interesting story about following your gut and intuition. One of the first trips we ever made overseas was to Scotland. And it was in Edinburgh. And the innkeeper, I think his name was Peter, said, uh, you're a photographer. Have you ever been to the west of Ireland? You'd love it. And I just remember going to the west of Ireland. I didn't know. You know, I knew where Ireland was. So I. this is before the Internet. So I called the Irish Tourist Board. And I said, I'm a photographer. I want to go to Ireland, but I don't know where to go. Is there such a thing as a photo guide? Do you have any kind of listing like that? And they, are, you could hear the paper shuffling, you know, like, oh. No, we don't have anything. And she was just about to hang up. She goes, wait, wait. We just got these brochures in. And there's this thing called a photographic tour. This guy, Ron Rosenstock, does that sound like something? And I'm like, oh, please send it to me. So this guy, Ron Rosenstock, he's changed my life because I went on that tour. And they picked you up at Shannon Airport. It's like eight photographers in his little old ratty Toyota van back then. And I just remember leaving Shannon Airport, and we were going up to County Mayo where he had a house. And just looking out the window, and it was cloudy and rainy, and there's just something grabbed a hold of me in that van. Just seeing that light, and it was almost like I've been here before. I know this place, and so I kept going back. And I went with Ron in '94, '95, and '96, and then since then, you know, kind of been on my own. And I've hooked up with Ron a couple of times when he's been over there with other people, and it literally changed my life that that one day, just like the day I bought the camera. Wow! And um... And I, I finally realized after about the fifth trip, it's the changing skies that why I can keep going back and I can go to the same spots and it's like totally different. And I, I can't wait. I'm going back, hopefully, if COVID will let me. Again, this March to photograph the Ackle Island St. Patrick's Day Parade. It's going to be the sixth time. And they haven't had it for the first time in the last two years. They've been on hold. But now it's going to be their 75th anniversary. And they the, my friends there tell me it's gonna be something. But it's just the pipe bands. Their parade there is not like ours here. Is, so it's just Is the, that the one that yeah. is in the spread? That right, they Yes. we, we, oh, we the, discussed the puppy that. cheek the yeah. boy. Big cheek, yeah. I yeah. call yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, He was in the Clue Bay pipe band. And if you ever get a chance, I mean I'm not I don't work for Irish Tourism, but you need to go to that Saint Patrick's Day parade on Accle Island.
0: Well I think the great thing is that starting in the morning, you know. <laughs> You're being awakened to music and expected to go to the pub, yeah. you know, for some hot whiskey and beer. It's like, yeah. well, that is the right way to start yeah. the day That's on St. Patrick's start, Day, and then you yep. go from, yeah. from town to town. Yeah, but so you would know why after you got out there
2: because it can be brutally cold in March there, and uh, which I love. You know, if it's totally sunny and all, I, I don't like that. You know, it's it's uh, I want some drama and some texture and some excitement, you know, so you sure get it there because the weather changes every three minutes. Yeah. You know
1: you know what's really interesting um your when you do these landscapes, I, it's always amazing to me um, how a photographer decides on the spot to shoot, and you know. Um, Because it's very difficult for the average photographer. I mean, we've all been forced to suffer through people taking us through their vacation photos. And they're like, the mountains were gorgeous. And then it's, you know, it's... They didn't study all the master's photo books. That's the difference, you know, because I
2: started out like that too.
1: And when I think of like some... some, You had so many uh, beautiful photos that we couldn't put them all in. And one that stuck in my head was this amazing, dark... um, landscape that was taken from from a great distance and it was like this kind of mountainous field that was very dark and there was a lone white horse very small in the distance running across the field and it was both kind of intimate and vast all at the same time
2: yeah that one was way different for me and you'll love this story maybe Um, i mean how do you how do you like how does how do you see that well here's how you see it you're laying in bed at your B&B on a rainy day in Ireland and you look up from the bed and you see suddenly light on the ceiling and you go, wow, the weather's changed. So I went out on the balcony and I looked across and I saw this white horse and it was far away. And I don't usually do that kind of photography. I'm usually more, you know, up in, in the middle of action. I You had to actually I had to climb through the window to get out on the the balcony. It was really the roof. It wasn't a balcony. I came back in. I had my 100 to 400 zoom lens. I ran back out there. The light was just coming down on the horse. You know, it was like a shaft of light and I was able to get like 10 exposures before the light was gone. And that's how that happened. But for me mainly it's chasing the light. You know, I look for the light and I just go in the direction of the light. I don't know where I'm heading. You know, I might know, I want to go to such and such city. You know, that might be an hour away, but on the way there, I'm just looking. You know, I'm, I'm trying not to die while I'm driving on those little roads, but I'm looking for interesting things. And many times, literally, I'll I'll see something. I'll have to go up a mile, turn around, and go back, and see if I can capture it. So I'm not one to, like, set up in a spot and be standing there for two hours waiting for the perfect light. And I actually read about Ansel Adams, and he wasn't that way either. Um, a lot of people think he was. But he might see a beautiful scene and the light's not right and he'll, oh, I need to be back here at 4 o'clock or whatever. So he'll come back. But, you know, you're just out searching. And, you know, I kind of call it putting on your game face. You know, you're there to do photography, not drink Guinness till you know, at night. (laughs) Um, You know, so you're just looking, hoping, you know, seeing. um,
0: Clay alluded to this, talking about like a portrait or in this case a landscape that could feel both. Uh, intimate and vast at the same time. And, of course, photographers shoot all sorts of subjects, but there is something interesting to think about your landscapes and your portraits as seeming, in some cases, to be very different in terms of, of course, the subject matter and maybe what the audience might expect to be revealed in each. Do you think of these do you think of these um styles similarly or do you think very differently about your work even depending on what you're shooting or is there sort of an an aesthetic or a mindset you you bring to both realms
2: well i guess the similarities are in all my stuff i try to kind of like paul strand and irving penn direct honest not too many tricks you know, there's not like I'm not grabbing a sky from over here that I like better than, you know, this other one and moving it over here. Um, so that's really my my guiding force. Is I'm trying to be direct, honest, and then you mentioned the word interpretation earlier somewhere along the line. When I get back to my studio, that's when a lot of the work really happens because, you know, maybe there's 15 shots of this one, let's say, mountain scene. And I determine number 11 is the one. And sometimes I don't even know why. It's usually maybe the cloud position or something if it's a landscape. And then I just, and, it, and also I listen to music while I'm working. And that puts me in certain moods. And um, And so then I start interpreting, you know. And a lot of times when I'm shooting it, there's something about that scene that drew me in. But maybe I didn't even know what it was. You know, and it's not until I'm working on the image that I figure it out. You know, it's like, oh, it's that light shaft coming down or it's the texture on the rocks. So then I start working like crazy trying to bring that stuff out. Now, with people, it's usually for me when I'm going through again, you know, the number I shot, it's the expression. It's a slight head tilt. You know, it's amazing sometimes it, when you, you do 15, let's say, in a row of a person. And at first they seem like they're all exactly the same. But somebody is just like you just did. You just move your head that much, and it just jumps up compared to the other 14. And um, Or maybe they dip their chin a little bit, you know. So most of my portraits, unless I'm overseas um, where I don't usually carry all my lights, you know, I'm lighting them. So I kind of already know. I've, I've established that parameter. I, I do my lighting on people. I like one side of the face lighter than the other to add a little um Contrast and you know, excitement. So, but basically the similarities and all this, it's directness, kind of uh, honesty uh, how in my much, interpretation.
1: How much of your work is behind the camera and how much is in front of the computer? As you alluded to, that you know, it's you a, don't move things around, like you don't switch out skies and stuff. But there's no. quite a bit of the modern darkroom yeah. on, on, to on me, your laptop uh, now. To
2: me, I... I'm looking at that image. I decide I'm going to work on like I'm in the dark room still, so I use old school techniques. I'm not doing a lot of masking and things that you know. I have people come over, especially young people, like well, you know, you could do blah. I'm like, no, this is the way I do it. So I'm using the dodge and burn tool, and people who are photographers out there would know what that is, and uh, it's basically lightening an area or darkening an area, like you used to do in the dark room, and basically I just start in on interpreting the image you know and i might have a good idea of like i want that sky really dark to make it dramatic and maybe I'll, that white horse you were talking about you know maybe i'll lighten him up just a little bit i don't think i had to do that on that one but you know as an example so and then the music again puts me in certain moods you know if i'm listening to classical music it's a lot different than if i'm listening to Jimi hendrix you know so it's all part of the the thing for me
0: what you know? i'm cur- talk about the music a little bit what um do you have sort of a method for determining what it is you want to be listening to in terms of what you're hoping to accomplish or?
2: Yeah, basically, you know, if I'm working on, let's say a photo from Ireland, I'll listen to Irish music. Um, I'm trying to remember what was going on that day. Maybe my feelings, maybe I remember being really cold and wet, you know? Um, so it's stuff like that, you know, but a lot of times I just start in and, and figure it out. But, um, you know, the, the music plays a big, big part, and I and I learned about that from Sudek, the poet of Prague. He claimed music was key, and it's, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, you've got to get in the right, like that game face I was talking about again. you got to set the mood. I you know, I've had people in watching me work because they want to learn, and I can't, I don't like that. You know, people looking over your shoulder. i got to be alone. i got to be in my element, you know, and just do my work. And uh, so I listen to a lot of jazz, Bill Evans. One of my favorites. I think I have sixty-five albums of his. He's a, the greatest jazz pianist player of all time. Let me just say that, <laughs> you know. But uh, classical music for sure. Uh, Rayfon Williams. I listen to a lot of him yeah. and uh, Mozart.
0: I got it, you know, you mentioned uh, Joseph Sudik lost his right arm. I think in World War One. Um, you think friendly about, fire? They called it. Yeah, but <laughs> you, you think about dealing with gear in, you know, the nineteen twenties. Yeah. Um, eight and ten you view cameras. Right. All and you one talk or. about, you know, not necessarily wanting to bring all of your lighting rigs to Ireland, you know, you can you can appreciate his commitment. I do want to ask you, you know, even when you talk about sort of old school techniques in the modern darkroom, do you sometimes struggle with sort of like what the truth of a frame is when you think about how you're sort of processing it? you know, in the dark room or? Mm-hmm. I don't. I don't struggle
2: um, because, you know, when you say the truth, it's it's kind of different than like working for the newspaper, you know. Yeah, I'm or, asking this very uh, much uh, yeah. from the perspective yeah. of a yeah. journalist and a yeah. photojournalist. Like, but we uh, like if, if I was photographing here and and, you know, I see a can of Coke back there, I'm not supposed to go move that, you know. But in my line of work, it's perfectly fine because I'm not – what I'm doing is called an interpretation or an impression, you know. Um, now, if you're doing a portrait, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not changing things, you know, too too much. I mean, right. you've got to kind of look like you, you know. Right. You know, I'm not, um, I'm not one to like. Uh, if if you've got an eye, now it's different in the commercial world, but right. if you've got one eye that's a little shut, I don't go and open that right. up, you know. Which, if you paid me to do your portrait, you might want me to, you know. So that's, that's another beauty of the, you know, this random portrait thing. You know, it's, it's my thing. You didn't hire me. I can do what I want. But, um, I, again, I, I keep going back. to I'm trying to be honest and direct, but still interpret the image. And a lot of that comes from maybe I just cropped in on your face, you know, that right. something wanted me to do that. Right. Um, or I did it when I shot it, you know, I, I framed you that way. And maybe you had an interesting earring on one side and, you know i put you off center and cropped it just so that it's against the white background and the other side's in the shadow you know so those are the kind of things you think about has
1: has digital photography changed it's obviously made things easier but has it changed your aesthetic at all or
2: i actually uh, at first I, I remember thinking i was going to be the last person to ever go into digital photography because i was mr darkroom you know i was known as uh, the the black and white guy you spent all day on the print you know around norfolk but after I got into digital a little bit, and, I, and especially now, things are so good. I love digital. You can be in the middle of working on that landscape, and unlike the darkroom, I can stop. I can go to the coffee shop. I just, you just hit save and come back, and there it is. But again, I'm using the same sort of tools, the dodge and burn tool, maybe some contrast adjustments and stuff like that. But I've totally embraced the digital world and uh, I don't miss the dark room at all. The only cool thing I missed about the dark room was that orange light and being able to lock the door and being in there with the Mozart plan and, and all that stuff. But I don't miss the hour of setup time and, you know, and all that stuff. Um,
1: yeah. But has it changed the way you approach the front end of that, that task, you know, the being out in the field and shooting now that you, you, you know, you have this digital convenience or does it make you take more chances with your, you know? Yeah,
2: cause. yeah, it does because you know, you, you a lot of people go. Eh, it's just a digital file. If you don't like it, delete it. You know, you can't do that with. You don't film. have to
1: go burn it and then <laughs> look at it and be like. Oh. Yeah,
2: no, no. So you know, it, it 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 is just a lot easier. You just make sure you got lots of digital cards with you, you know, and just shoot. Um, you didn't do that with film because you had a you had to pay for that roll of Ilford FP4 and twelve exposures. Then you had to develop it yourself. So, maybe you're a little more selective, I think. But, you know, a lot of times when I'm, especially if I'm photographing crashing waves, let's say, you have no idea what's gonna happen, you know. So, I will shoot 300 photos. My tripod hasn't moved, you know, but I'm looking for that perfect one. And you won't know till you see it when you're back at the ranch, I call it. And so, that's the beauty of digital right there. Um, you can take those chances and shoot a lot more and not worry
0: about it. You mentioned crashing waves, and of course that's evocative of you know your trips to Ireland. You mentioned you're hoping to maybe return there in a couple months. Just briefly, what has the pandemic been like for you? What has this past year and a half or so?
2: It's changed uh, a lot of things. First of all, um, I was going to have my first exhibition in Ireland two years ago. That got postponed. Then it was going to be this year. That got, got postponed. So now hopefully... That's going to happen on my birthday, June 3rd, in Westport, Ireland. Um, The other thing, when, when the pandemic first hit, I remember that April, like a lot of people didn't know what was going on. I just sat in my backyard for that whole month, you know, thinking, well, there was no work, there was nothing going on. And then it became kind of apparent that this is not going away. So I need to get back in and do something. So I came up with this project of photographing old tools. And, you know, I was trying to turn them into, like, sculptural works of art. I was looking at some of my dad's old hammers and things like that. And so I was standing them up like it was a sculpture and then using my hot lights to light them. And I hadn't done much with hot lights. And um, so I did that for a year, you know, and an occasional, like, headshot for a client or whatever and then uh it's so cool um i i was still doing the project this year and and i had done um two years back an art project over at old dominion university of uh, one of my random portrait projects where we just wandered the campus with the help of a lot of student helpers and one of those students came to see me um this year back in august And he told me he was moving to New York City and he wanted to tell me goodbye, how much fun he'd had and all that. His name was Isaiah. So I said, Isaiah, before you go, let me do a portrait of you. And I had all my hot lights set up. So I did a hot light portrait of Isaiah. And I said, wow, that that was pretty cool. And so the next day, the guy who ran ODU Arts, Cullen Strawn, I saw on Facebook, his photo, and he'd grown during covid a really long beard so i emailed him said cullen i gotta do your portrait i just did isaiah knew who isaiah was he goes how about tomorrow and i went okay so i did his portrait and i said wow i think i have a new series and i've been doing it pretty much every day since and, and what's cool about this is unlike all these random portrait projects I'm calling on people I know. And now some of them are calling me and they want to be in on it because I'm putting them on Facebook. And I'm I'm interviewing the people and finding out things about them. And a lot of times these people, I thought I knew everything. And you're finding out you didn't. And so I'm hoping to do an exhibition or a book with this work. Again, I have no clue what will happen. But um, I'm having so much fun using these hot lights and doing, I call it old-timey lighting like they did in the 30s and 40s even into the fifties for electronic flash and nobody even, you know, knew what it was yet. And there was no big soft boxes and all that nice, even, beautiful light. This is the exact opposite, hard, direct. And I'm just loving it. And, um, and I'm going to keep doing this until I don't keep doing it. You know, I have no idea. So.
0: Another random portrait of Glenn McClure, as there it turns know, out. Everything I do is go. random.
2: You know, it's like Ireland riding down the road. Oh, I don't know where I'm shooting today, but, uh you know, it's all seemed to be working out. Well, Glenn, I want
1: to thank you for coming in and talking to us, and let us go in depth with you. Um, This has been great. We have shot right through. I mean, it's we've done we've done the full load.
2: Well, it's certainly a pleasure. I
0: appreciate the opportunity. It was fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you, Glenn.
2: Sure.